I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. I am your host, Isaiah Henkel, and I'm very excited for today's show because we are going to be learning about the application scientist position, sometimes called a field application scientist, a field application specialist. Certainly there are these roles for people who are in different PhD types, uh, engineering, uh, even non-STEM. Uh, many companies are hiring for this role. It's a very exciting role. It's actually the first role that I got into. Uh, the first industry job I had was as an application scientist, and we are very grateful today, very lucky to have on Alex Wojcik. Uh, she is an application scientist currently at Chemomedic. She's living in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, working there, has transitioned into this role. It's her first role after getting her PhD. She got her PhD from, the, from Washington State University in a a little town called Pullman, which we'll talk to her about. She also is a uh, ha received her Master's of Public Health from Mercer University School of Medicine. Alex, it's great to have you on with us. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on today, Isaiah. Yeah, thanks for being here. I'm fascinated by this role. I still am. It's, I think out of all the industry roles that I've had, it was the most exciting for me, probably for a combination of factors because I was coming out of a, a lab and having never really traveled anywhere, uh, not very, you know, as far as I never left the country uh, before graduate school. And then I got into this role and I got to travel a lot and I, I still got to stay close to science. And it was, it was just very exciting for me. So I was wondering if you could help our audience who's listening, who may not have even heard of this job title before, just explain it from a kind of the 10,000 foot or meter view. What, what do FAS's field application scientists such as yourself do? So um, just to kind of reiterate what you said, there is a lot of travel, and that's one of the reasons why I got into this position. So very, very broadly, you as an FAS or even as an appli a technical application scientist, which is a different type of application scientist, um, you are kind of the interface between your customers and the company. So in this respect, you have to have like really great customer facing skills, but you also need to have these highly technical skills that we as PhDs are used to using on a daily basis. You know, all those basic troubleshooting things that you had to do because you have this super old piece of equipment that you're the only one that has it within, you know, 100 miles or so. You have to figure out how to use it. Um, so a lot of times there's a lot of troubleshooting. Um, and it's very rewarding because sometimes it's something small that makes the customer's day. Sometimes it's something more technical and you actually have to work with the R&D team to try to fix it because it's something within the software that you can't do. Mm. So there are so many different facets. But what's great is where you're positioned is you're working closely with the sales team, but you also are going to work with the marketing team, business development because all of these other parts of the company are interested in your scientific input. They need to know how to market to scientists. They need to know the lingo and they just don't know that. So they come to you for that. And you're kind of like a central role for the company. And because of this, you get a lot of exposure to a lot of different roles 
And it's very common for um, application scientists to move into these other parts of the company after being in this position for anywhere for three to five years, just because they say, oh, well, that looks exciting. Let me go try that out. Oh, let me go try this out. And you can either move within the same company. You can jump from company to company if you like a different technology better. So it's a really great starting point if you're just not really sure what you want to do, but you love science still and you're okay with not doing your own research. Mm, yeah, I, I think that is an excellent description of, of what this role is. And I didn't realize this at the time. I remember having no knowledge of job titles and the application scientist job title I saw on a flyer uh, for a uh, company that was coming to our university to uh, put on a little uh, a demo for a type of medical software program. And I was like, application scientist. I just I knew the word scientist. Obviously, that's what jumped out at me. I didn't really understand that, that the application part of that job title was very informative because like you said, you're helping clients for a, a particular company, whether it's a biotech company or another type of company, apply that company's product whether it's a reagent instrument, software, to their work. Now, their work could be research, right? It could be uh, clinical, or it could just be something else, right? I mean, there's application scientist-type roles for people that are, you know, sell uh, cloud uh, software-as-a-service systems. And these people go, go in and they help, uh, let's say, you know, company A uh, apply companies B's who's selling the, the software uh, they apply it to their systems. They help them uh, integrate it into the rest of their company. And it's Yeah, to kind of like piggyback off of that point, what I've seen a lot more just in um, positions that are open is there's a lot more next-gen sequencing. So if you have that, or um, if you're not even interested in biology, if you have that hardcore software background, you can just come in and run the code. You don't necessarily have to know the biology but behind genetics. And then they need those field people to go out or any type of application support to help with, you know, their next gen sequencing and even uploading it to the cloud and then analyzing it on other servers. So um, I just kind of want to piggyback off of that, that all of these application scientist roles aren't necessarily just for life science products like you had mm. mentioned, like reagents and instruments. It's anything you could imagine. Yeah, exactly. And that's, where I want to stay. I want to stay at the higher level for a little bit longer because I think it's important to break down these limiting beliefs. For, for anyone listening, you know, the first thing you're going to think of, and we know this because we've, you know, we've worked with tens of thousands of PhDs, is that, oh, well, I can't get into this role because of my background, or can I get into this role with my background? And then what is this role? You know, the role that we're talking about, one version of it has scientists in it. But you have to understand, like I mentioned at the beginning, it could be field application specialist, field application engineer, and focus on the type of role. This is really a, a liaison type role. You know, pharmaceutical companies now, and we did a radio show on this in the past, have a medical science liaison role. This, uh, an application scientist or an application specialist is a medical science liaison, but for a biotech company usually or a technology company usually, but it can be a lot of different types of companies. And, and again, uh, tech or cloud computing, I mean, even hospitality companies at the the B2B level, the business development level, have liaisons like this that connect uh, companies to another company and help them apply their product or their service. 
Uh, this is something that all of you can do. And this is a trend that we're seeing more and more with PhDs is getting into these central roles. So Alex, you talked about how this role is very central. You're working with the sales team. You're working with the support team. You're working with the R&D team. You're working with uh, the other company's teams. Why do you think PhDs are so good at these kind of central roles like application scientist uh, or engineer or, you know, MSL, other liaison business development? Like what is it, what have you noticed just in terms of you getting into that role that you can do very well better than most other people? So as PhDs, we're actually trained to be able to take in so much information and distill it down to what's mm. what's relevant to this situation here. Oh, this other thing that I just read would be important for something else, but let me keep it in the back of my mind so that when that comes up or I can look at it later. So we're really good at collating and organizing information in a very quick manner that allows us to say, let's think about this for a second. I have these few ideas. Let's try this one first because it's most likely to work, then this one, then this one. And so we're really great at that just from our training of, you know, even looking at literature to do, you know, a review article. You, there's so much information out there. That's just one of the examples. Um, maybe you have to read a manual in order to learn how to run the instrument because nobody's there to teach you. And then you can go online and, you know, go to all these forums about how to look at the instrument. And you just kind of keep collating all of this information. And then being able to express it to the customer or maybe even other people on your team if you find something new. Um, so you have to be able to internalize that, but then you also have to present it. And we do a lot of different presentations through seminars, through teaching, um, undergraduate courses as a graduate student. And all of these you should take on board as learning experiences. Um, I did a lot of teaching and I can't tell you how much that has helped me in my customer facing skills because you have to be able to keep their attention, but you also need to be knowledgeable. So incorporating these presentation skills, these are something you can practice in graduate school, which is really great. You can go just start having conversations with people about certain things and you can weave in the highly technical aspects, but then also, you know, hey, how are you doing? you know, the weather is X, Y, and Z. Oh man, it was hard to drive here. You know, things like that, that are just more personable. So you can mm. start practicing those, but those two are like the biggest aspects of collating information that are, that PhDs excel at because we've been taught to do it quickly. And I, and I love that you uh, transitioned into this discussion of, of really transferable skills. I think a lot of you know, for those of you who are listening, you know, maybe you're thinking about your first industry job, your next one, we tend to dive into, well, this company works for, you know, NGS, like Alex just mentioned as an example, a next generation sequencing. I don't have a lot of experience there. I can't get into this role. Well, you can because you're incredible at collecting and synthesizing information. Um, you can learn things on your own. A, a PhD gives you that ability. And, you know, in a role like being an application scientist, like many other roles where PhDs are thriving right now, despite everything that's happening in, in, in uh, you know, the, in current times. Uh, it's because you can collect information, collate it, like Alex said. You can also process information faster than most people. We, we're, we're surrounded by other PhDs, so we don't think that we are good at processing information 
Um, but we are, we can take in a huge volume of information. We can keep it organized in our heads or otherwise. Um, we can collect all that information in the first place and then we can analyze it. We can synthesize it. We can put it together. We can uh, look at different fields and, and different data points and different trends. And uh, again, at, at a scale that most people just cannot do, they don't have the training for. And it's easy to forget the, the rigorous training that, that we've been through to get our PhDs that allow us to do that. So I think those are the foundational skills. Um, uh, beyond that, like you said, you also brought up, which we'll talk more about because I want to hear about the day-to-day -day here in a minute. Uh, you have to present. And sometimes you're presenting to maybe a larger audience, but sometimes it's a, it's a small group meeting you're, or you're presenting to one key stakeholder or one key opinion leader, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I want to dive into that. But first, can you help us understand, Alex, you know, what does your typical day look like? Let's say, you know, let's say last year before, you know, a lot of the travel stopped. Um, what did the average week look like maybe? How did you spend your time? You know, how much was, uh, was in meetings? How much of it were you, you know, working remotely? How much were you traveling? How much were you coordinating with the, the sales team versus the R&D team? How much were you front-facing or presenting? Uh, can you give us an idea? Yeah, so I'll go big picture down to smaller picture. So I, my region is pretty big, and this is going to vary. It's going to depend on your company, and that'll determine how much overnight travel you're, you'll be doing. So since I'm in the Bay Area, I will drive locally about three weeks out of the month. And this fourth week out of the month, I'm usually on a plane, usually up in Seattle or somewhere in the Midwest or up to Vancouver, Canada. So that's kind of how my travel is spread out. And that's going to vary depending on the size of your company and how many um, field application scientists are within your company. So when just driving locally and just kind of driving around, um, I would say four out of the five days on average, I'm actually going to customer sites. And I'll do anything from installing an instrument to doing a demo before they purchase the instrument, um, helping them troubleshoot uh, any issues after purchasing the instrument, maybe doing a training um, to, because new people have come on board at the company and they need an official representative from the company to train people. And um, so those are kind of my field days. And then I try to take one day a week or making sure I'm at home to answer emails because we get customer emails all the time. We do a lot of troubleshooting via email. So that's when I will do a lot of those things. And um, I don't do as much direct communication with R&D because that's just how our um, company is set up. But what I do is if I find an issue, I will send it to my manager and then it's up to them to take care of sending that, to, sending that on to R&D and then all of them can fix that. And then it kind of trickles back down to me. So um, then I'm always interacting with the sales team, especially anything pre-sales. So that would be going to conferences, setting up a demo. Um, I'm in constant communication with the sales team. And then once the sale occurs, um, then I'm pretty much on my own because it's out of the sales team hands. But if there are any issues, um, I can reach out to anyone at the company to just say, hey, you know, we're having an issue with this. Can you help with that? And th things like that. So I do work at a smaller company. There's about 150 employees globally. 
So our U.S. team, including our U.S. sales team, is only about 25 people. So we're stretched pretty thin just because we're smaller, but we're still growing. Um, yeah, on the other hand of that, if you were at a larger company, you might not have as many day-to-day -day tasks. So um, that's pretty much how my, my time is spent, other than, you know, the random meeting here and there. Um, but that's like a once-weekly meeting that I have with the rest of my team. Yeah, and I think the important parts here is, is that you get to stay close to, or you can if you want to, the technical side of your work, whether it's science or engineering or some other aspect. Like you, you get to get into the details, but you're not stuck in the details because you get to coordinate with, between different departments. And I always found that enjoyable because sometimes, depending on your personality type, you can get really deep into uh, – you know, the, the code, if you're working with a software program, or you can get really deep into, you know, the protein interaction. And, and as PhDs, we're really good at that. But sometimes we miss out on the, the larger, more strategic part of business because of this. We don't get to see how different departments within a company interact. We don't get to see how businesses, you know, the business-to-business -business, uh, deals uh, that are often done for bus in, in business development or that application scientists are often uh, a part of or, or certainly support uh, get to be privy to. So, uh, Alex, I'm curious from your perspective, how is your understanding of business, the more strategic side of business, increased since you started as an application scientist? Can you talk to us a little bit about the different departments, how they engage, your understanding of how a product is brought to market and how it's supported afterwards? Um, anything on this, this line of, of thinking? Yeah, definitely. So I have learned so much on, you know, the business side of things, because as most of us don't have any business experience, this was a great time for me to learn. So as far as most companies are concerned, if there's going to be a new product, it is developed in R&D. And then they have um, a beta test that goes out to very important customers or Customers that could be a significant influence in the company in the future in some way or manner. And then it moves on to um, setting up demos of that instrument so that companies can try it out and they can just essentially beta test it and say, hey, this works, this doesn't work. And then they get all of that feedback and we're actually in the process of rolling out a new instrument right now that just launched a few months ago. So we're still running into a few bugs, but as we encounter those bugs in the field, we always bring them back to our manager and then they bring that to the R&D team to kind of update the software and see how we can fix it. Um, but it's really important to have this communication as far as the business end is concerned because as a scientist, we're used to speaking in science lingo, but you have to be able to break it down. And this is where a lot of having that great communication is important because when you're talking to people within the business side of things, you have to remember that you're talking to non-scientists and um, you don't want to make your team feel like they're not as smart as you are because they don't know science, but they know this whole other business aspect of the company that you have no idea about. So I've learned that it's just kind of like a, a give and take. So when I notice that some people on our sales team don't really understand 
exactly why we're saying this certain line to a customer, I can, you can obviously detect that in their voice. And so after the call with the customer, I'll always say, hey, so it seemed like you didn't really understand this. Do you want me to break it down for you? So then you'll sit there and you'll just try to explain it to them. And then, you know, whenever there are any updates on the business end or the sales end, they will also communicate those to me so that I can be aware so that I can, so I'm submitting things properly and that we can just have a cohesive unit when we're in front of the customer, because that's the most important thing to be as just a united front to the customer. Yeah. I really like that you brought this up because being able to speak, and this is what I called it when I first understood the principles you just discussed, being able to speak nerd and speak normal person, right? It's this skill set that we have to learn as PhDs because believe it or not, you didn't come into graduate school being able to speak the same language that you can speak now or since you got your PhD. Uh, Whether it's just using the words moreover or furthermore, more, (laughs) certainly in writing, (laughs) right? There's just little things like that. Obviously, the nomenclature of your field, but also being able to speak at a a higher level in, in terms of the uh, the adjectives that you use, the uh, the transition words, the adverbs. I mean, everything, the just the way you structure sentences changed from being in graduate school. And, and in a sense, you have to change them again. You have to add more to your repertoire. You have to be able to speak the language of, of business, the language of industry. You got to be able to talk to stakeholders like Alex is saying, talk to stakeholders um, who don't have your technical background. You have to make, you have to help possibly a company's team use a product, again, a service, uh, it could be an instrument, a reagent, software, whatever it mm-hmm. might be, you have to train them and they may, none of them may have a PhD and none of them may have a, match, uh, a bachelor's uh, degree. You, you don't know. And so you got to be able to uh, raise your game in terms of training other uh, types of people, other, other segments with other backgrounds. And it's, uh, a very power, it's a very powerful skill set to learn once you're able to do that. And it, it just makes you a more, uh, a, I would say, a stronger job candidate for the future as well, no matter where you want to go. Mm-hmm. But let's talk more about that. So what, can you give us some specific examples? So like, how do you phrase things when you're talking to someone who doesn't have a PhD, when you're trying to cha- uh, train them on the products you currently support? Does a, does a particular story jump out at you? How have you learned to help people process or understand things better by talking to them differently, maybe less academically? Yeah, so I actually have a great example of this. So I went to set up an instrument um, at a, uh, a company who, you know, usually when I go on site, I'm interacting with scientists who, you know, have had some, something to do with science somewhere in their career. However, um, the one scientist that was on this site, it was a really small company. They only had about four employees on site. The one scientist was out on travel. These other people that I was supposed to be training and teaching how to use the instrument um, had never even held a pipette before. So our instrument is an automated cell counter and um, you know, you need to have well-mixed cells in order to count them. And these people had not even ever heard of cell culture, didn't know why we grow cells the way we do. So in this case, and this was a very extreme case, this was the only one I've had, but 
it was a great learning experience for me because I had to take a step back in um, with my voice. I could not come off as judgmental of like, oh, you don't know how to do cell culture. You don't know how to trypsonize cells. Who are you? You kind of have to bring it back and say, okay, so tell me, what do you know that you're doing here? Um, do you have any understanding of what's going on? And they said, yeah, I think there's something with cells in this hood, but I don't know anything about that. So before we even got to the instrument and all of that, I was like, okay, I'm going to back this up. And I told them all about cell culture, what we need, why it's important to count your cells and have a good number of cells for moving forward and knowing your viability and all of this. And then we kind of got into the technical details of the instrument itself. But I just didn't give them as many technical details about the instrument because I've already overwhelmed them with like, oh my gosh, science is so much. It's so overwhelming. Um, and so I just, you know, I said, this is the instrument. This is what it does. Here's our consumable. Here's how it's used. And then you get your result right here. And they very much appreciated that. And that's also our role as an application scientist to see where your customers know things and where they don't because they everybody needs to have a certain understanding behind what they're doing in order to make sure they're doing it properly. So um, that would be my most extreme example of when I had to kind of roll back <laughs> see how far back we had to get with the ground. Yeah, and I, I, I like that example too because it's easy to assume the person that we're talking, like we, we have the curse of knowledge as PhDs very often. Yeah. Um, we think that everybody knows how something works at a highly complex level because we, we spend most of our time in graduate school or otherwise postdoc, et cetera, talking to people, not only who have been trained at that level, but who have been trained, you know, in that field with the, again, the nomenclature of that, that field uh, as well. So it's, it's very good to, uh, I would say as soon as you get into an application scientist role, get to know all of the other team members at the company because there's going to be a lot of people at the company that don't have PhDs and learn how to talk to them first. This will go a long way in terms of helping you talk to different types of people and help, helping you uh, collaborate with different types of people in the field. Uh, so Alex, uh, you know, as far as the day-to-day, -day, I think we're getting, we have a pretty good picture of what this role is, what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, is is there anything that you thought was going to be one way that turned out to be a different way? So what was your misconceptions going into this role uh, bef you know, before getting into it, before being there for you know, over a year now? Um, so that if we have somebody who, let's say they were looking at getting hired into the application scientist role in a couple of weeks, they're about to, they probably have a certain understanding of what the role is, what they're going to be doing, right? That topical understanding that we can understand, you know, that we know from maybe doing our own research on websites, et cetera. But what... What changed now that you are entrenched in the role? Uh, what, was, what were the misconceptions and what was demystified? So I think my biggest worry that I had was that since I had never been in this type of environment, um, I didn't know how to interact in the business environment. I know how we interact in science. I know how we send an email and it's just short and sweet and to the point. But when it comes to business, there are these small things that make a big difference. So every email, instead of being like, hey, I need this, you say, hi, so-and-so, 
I hope you're doing well. Mm. Um, I just have this question for you really quickly. Or if it's a customer, say, hi, thank you for reaching out. It's great to hear from you. So something that a scientist consider more fluffy is something that's more accepted in the business world. And understanding where those lines were and how to approach them was, I think, the most difficult part for me because I can learn an instrument. I can tell you how to use it. But I didn't have that business um, acumen at all. So you kind of just are CC'd on a lot of emails and just look at how they're phrased because you're going to be in an onboarding process and a probationary period. So you're going to be always having someone there with you at the beginning. And so this is a great time to ask, you know, why do you say this this way and not this way? Sometimes, you know, in science, we're used to direct is the best way. Well, in industry, being just the most direct is not how some customers want to interact. It actually takes a while of you building up that relationship until you can be so direct with a customer. So you have to be cognizant of those business-related aspects that really caught me off guard. And you have to be pretty good at reading situations to try to figure out what each customer even feels comfortable with. And um, if you're not great at that, which a lot of scientists are not, there are quite a few books about um, reading body language to figure out if somebody is understanding, if they're happy, if they're frustrated. And so I found that some of those were actually really great for me to learn to just pick up on some more subtle cues of business with customers and then business within the company as to how I'm supposed to interact with everyone. Yeah. And I, I, I remember very, very specifically as you tell that story, uh, learning the same thing. And it's really two different things that are happening. One, it's the overall culture of industry and business that you're learning. And this might vary a little bit country to country, uh, maybe a lot depending, but you know, overall for a global organization or certainly an organization that, that you know, sells globally, uh, you know, being on the internet, kind of every organization uh, has some sort of global readership. Uh, so understanding what that looks like versus the academic culture. And I remember the email thing to me too seemed like a giant waste of time. <laughs> I would just get to the point. Yes. No, hi. Hi, Alex. How are you? Hope you're you know, having a great day. I would just be like, hey, where is this at? Or how do I get this? Or where is this? You know, and this is what we're used to. It's kind of what we learn from, I think, our PIs or our professors in large part, certainly other people in academia. But having that kind of uh, buffer language, and it does seem very flower, flowery to, uh, to a PhD is important. And then there's also, there's not just the overall culture of industry and business, but also the culture of your unique company. I remember the first company that I worked at specifically as an application scientist, uh, they were a bit more to the point. Uh, you know, they would, uh, I, I guess, kind of uh, joke around or was a bit more playful. Things didn't seem quite as rushed, even though, you know, they were still executing very well. It was a successful company. But then the second company I went to was very serious and intense and the emails were a bit more intense. But on top of this, they, were, they, would, they would always add, Hope you're, having a, hope you're having a great day today. Just wanted to check on one thing. And then they would say it. And then at the end, it would, was like a formal, you know, sincerely or a formal, uh, you know, 
best, best wishes. I'm not kidding. And, and just little things like that you'll pick up on because as a PhD, you're used to looking very closely at written text. Uh, but I remember being a big, a big difference too. And it just shows how culture isn't everything. Culture is the how you get things done. Um, and there's an industry culture and then you know, there's different layers of it. There's a culture of your company, culture of your department, cu- culture of your position. Uh, so great examples, Alex. You know, I want to talk a little bit more now about how you transitioned. So you got into this role. We have a good picture of it right now. I'm going to come back to it just in terms of the other kind of positions that are lateral or vertical, the, the trajectory here in a second. But I want to ask you, what did your transition look like? I know that you came from a university, a large university that happened to be in a very small town. So certain things were challenging to you, uh, networking or otherwise, but I know you had some other challenges too. So if you could rewind a little bit and talk about, you know, when you were in the heat of your job search, or at least when you're in that, that time period where you knew you had to transition out of industry, but had no idea how to do it, what were your major sticking points? Oh, yes. Um, I think I realized this like my third year in graduate school when I was having to you know, help write grants for my lab. And I was just like, this is not what I want to do with the rest of my life. Um, Teaching is great, but I'd rather be teaching at the bench side, not lecturing. So I was just like, I have no idea what to do. So um, I was fortunate enough to have you come to our university, you know, two or three times a semester and do a few different, um, like your resume uh, presentation and your negotiation and a few other ones that you had. And I was like, this sounds like somewhere that I should be. Let me investigate. So, you know, I went on and tried to figure out if Cheeky was right for me because, you know, researchers would rather do the research than make a decision on the research. So I kind of had to kick myself in the butt to be like, Let's get this together. And I did, and I joined the organization, and I'm so happy that I did. Um, But one of the big things that I learned was networking is so important. And I was like, I am in the middle of nowhere. So just for those of you who don't know this, um, this town has about 30,000 people in it, and 25,000 of them are undergrads. So, and it's in the middle of nowhere. It's six hours in any direction driving to a big city. So networking wasn't going to be easy. And um, you had mentioned going to all these different in-person networking events because that's what you have to do. You have to get your name out there. But I was just like, this is not realistic for me. And so I decided, well, I guess the only option I have is to do everything online. So (laughs) that's what I did. It was difficult because it's always difficult to start something new. But once you get into it, it gets a little bit easier. Um, You just have to put a lot more upfront time into cold contacting people to just set up those informational interviews to learn about their positions. And, you know, I think I set up, you know, over 50 different informational interviews because I didn't know what I wanted to do. But from each one, I was getting so many different pieces of information about this position that would allow me to make me, allow me to make the decision. Yes, I want this one. No, this position is not for me whatsoever. Um, And through that journey, one of the biggest things that I personally had to deal with was 
imposter syndrome and thinking that I didn't really have the skills that I did. Um, unfortunately, I had a PI who was very belittling to me, but not to my male um, counterpart graduate student that was also in the lab. So that was something that, you know, I was having to overcome. And after, you know, sitting down and doing one of the exercises in the CSA modules of saying like, these are actually all of the skills that I have, and I can do all of these very well. And just kind of reaffirming every day, you know, I had sticky notes everywhere being like, you can do it, you have the skills, you should be confident. And, you know, I just kind of worked up from there. So between those two, I kind of got my act together. It did take a long time. Don't get me wrong. It took years of just reminding myself, like, you can do it. You have the capabilities of doing it. And you're actually good at a lot of things, even though you don't have that support right now from your mentor, the person who's supposed to be mentoring you, telling you, I think you can do it. So... Through those two things, I did manage to get a job, and um, I actually applied for positions all in the Bay Area. So I had to move from Washington State down to the Bay, and I was interviewing remotely for a job in the Bay Area from Washington, and I was going all over the country to interview for these um, after we had done the initial interviews uh, over Zoom. So it was a big challenge, and it... If, you get out of it what you put into it. So if you put a lot of work into it, you work on getting your network up and you constantly interact with those people, um, they will let you know when they see opportunities and they can work as referrals for you. So that's kind of how I overcame mm. with being so remote. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you sharing that story. And it's, it's, always, very, uh, it's always very hard to hear that PhDs can go through that. I think it's almost any location when you're getting your PhD, any university, you can be isolated. And, and it's easy to, be, to feel isolated. Uh, we, in, in part, we have to isolate ourselves to do such intense, rigorous work. Um, but there's always a risk in isolation because you don't have as many support systems and you, you let yourself become supported by uh, you know, kind of the faceless university system, maybe some people in your department, obviously, you know, in your case, the lab, your, your PI, but then when your PI doesn't support you or belittles you, you know, and this is something that I've, I've had experience with too, uh, it further isolates you to the point where you think there's, there's no way out, there's no other option. And then to be in a small town on top of that, and we hear a lot of PhDs who are, you know, they're, they're not in a, a large metropolitan area and they're not close. You were hours away uh, from the closest city. I just happened to be, uh, which I think was very fortunate because I, I loved coming out there and I remember meeting uh, close enough for us to be able to do a, a live event. Um, and that's, that's what you have to look for. No matter where you're at, there's going to be information online or in person. And once it's on your radar that you the answer is not in further isolation. It's not in further introspection. Like you've done enough right. of that. That's comfortable for you. The answer is in getting out, you know, getting outside of yourself, seeing what else is out there, opening up, making new connections, learning new things. And so, you know, as you started to do that, Alex, you said, you know, that talking to other people was especially helpful 
and hearing about their experiences. Do you remember any particular conversation that you had with an individual on an informational interview that really changed your perspective or gave you that, that motivation or that hope or was kind of like that aha moment, I can do this or that's the job for me? Yeah, I would say it was probably after my like 15th or 20th informational interview. Um, I had come across someone that really saw something in me and uh, we ended up chatting on the phone for about an hour and a half. It turned from informational interview to just getting to know each other. I had just cold messaged this person said, hey, can we set up a phone call? Um, and I told the person, you know, this is what I've done. I'm not really sure what kind of position is good for me, but you have this FAS role and it sounds like something I could do. And after the end of that call, this person had said, you would be absolutely perfect for this role. And I was like, I don't, I don't really believe you. And I told him that. And he said, I can understand that because I was in your position when I was looking for a job. And he had been in this position for a year or two. And he said, you have all of the qualities of someone that would be in this role. You can talk science. You are good at communicating. And, you know, it really took this external person that I had never spoken to, to say, you have these qualities. Um, even though throughout the whole time, I had friends in graduate school who were telling me the same thing. It's just nice to have that affirmation. And, you know, every once in a while, if you do enough informational interviews, you will find someone that you just click with. And this is someone that I have kept in contact with and I will keep in contact with just because we had established such a great repertoire and um, just moving each other forward. And now we are kind of, you know, colleagues and friends as opposed to mentor, mentee, kind of how do things happen and things like that. So you will find those. You just have to put the time and effort into talking to people. So having someone that I really hadn't met before reaffirming that I do have these qualities and I should be confident in myself because I can do it uh, was, I think, the best thing that could have happened. That's incredible. And uh, hopefully it shows all of you, you know, instead of thinking, and I know I would back when I was a, a graduate student, I would think, wow, I really wish I had somebody like that in my life, or I really wish, you know, or, or there's nobody in my life that, that's done that, you know, nobody that's showing me the way, nobody's helping me. And, and I know for many of you, that is the case. At best, you maybe have some sort of quote unquote career counselor, which is probably an academic who's never worked in industry. And despite how good their intentions are, you know, it's just, there's a difference when you actually do it. You know, yep. uh, the, there's just, it, you need to get around people who have worked in industry or who are transitioning into industry and who actually understand what it's like, who have something on the line, they have, uh, you know, some skin in the game. And when you talk to these people and, and, and then you have one of them say, you have these skills, you can do this. It's almost like they give you permission to believe in yourself again. Yes, exactly. Academia can really beat you down and make you not believe in yourself because over the last few decades, it, you know, academ academia has gone from just being critical on the data and critical on work, which is important for avoiding confirmation bias, et cetera, to being critical on the person, to being critical on the, the students. 
And of course, with you know grant funding levels low and everything that's happening uh, this year, of course, you have a lot of people who are you know they're not getting going to get tenure, a lot of furloughs, et cetera, and, and it's just become a much more critical environment. But you have to know that you are valuable. Uh, you are valuable in industry specifically. And you can also be that person for someone else if you're listening and you've transitioned into your first career. You, you can be a, a mentor. You can give another PhD permission to believe in themselves again. And of course, that belief is just backed with work and execution. And just like your, you know, your transferable skills give rise to the technical skills and, and all of this comes together to launch you into a, an industry career where you can really help a lot of people and you can have a big impact. The impact that I think all of you wanted to have by getting into academia, but you just didn't know that there was a second step getting out of academia into an industry career like the application scientist career. Alex, the last line of questioning I have for you is your career trajectory. So you're in this role now, you're looking around. We already talked about how it's a great role for lateral moves, as in moves to different departments. What are some of the departments you interact with the most that you could see yourself or you've seen other application scientists easily get into? And then where does an application scientist go vertically, if anywhere? Is there, you know, a, a, who manages you and who manages that person? Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, what I've seen is that if you want to stay in the same company, if you stay as an FAS for a while, you can very easily be bumped up as a manager or you can move to another company if you have, you know, a certain number of years of experience and go be a manager for another FAS team um, at another company if there's just not that lateral movement at your company. And um, one of the very common things that I have seen is people moving from FAS to a sales role. And the reason for this is um, sales does have the higher potential earnings because you have um, compensations that you're given for, you know, selling, you know, whatever products you're selling. And a really great salesperson has this really technical background that can actually help them interact with the customer better so that they feel they're interacting more with the scientist instead of the sales uh, position. So um, a lot of people move there just for the increase in salary. Um, I personally see myself moving into more of a management role because I love people. I love working with people and I really enjoy this role. So maybe I would go into like a management role or I could also see myself moving into more of the marketing or communication space because I really enjoy at communicating with scientists and, you know, talking to them about their work and just kind of bridging this gap between scientists and non-scientists and saying, you know, science really isn't that difficult. Let me break it down for you and see these reasons. And that's exactly what marketing and communications do. So those are the roles I kind of see myself potentially going in in the future. I'm not going to lock myself into those because right now, I love the application scientist role and I kind of want to stay here for the time being, but you know, life changes and we'll see what happens in the future, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. Um, and then, you know, if you stay at a certain company for a certain amount of time, you can move up to like VP of the, of the, um, the region, if that's something you're interested in. And if you want to work more closely with sales, but not be in sales. 
So um, you can move up. It just depends on how much space there is in that company to move up and to grow. So if it's a smaller company, you can uh, have, you have a whole possibility of moving into different directions as the company grows. Whereas if it's a larger company, you might have to wait for someone to leave that upper management position before you can have it. So those are just a couple of the different ways that you can go. And I definitely see myself being more in the, the people management, but still having some kind of science interaction because I'm a scientist at heart and I never want to leave science. So, Yeah, I agree. My experience was similar. I think once you get a taste for the other side of, of business, you want to explore it more. Uh, although I have seen some people, you know, go back to R&D, but once you get into an applications uh, role where you get to kind of be that conduit between, you know, R&D and upgrades and fixes and new products and the, the sales and the marketing and the marketing communications and being in the field, the business development, et cetera, that it, it can be really fun to explore that side of business uh, that's more whether front-facing or more on the side of communicating to different types of people, your knowledge, your understanding of science, engineering, whatever your PhD background is. Uh, so great insights, Alex. Just to close, you know, who, who would you recommend this position for? So if you were interviewing someone, and I'm sure you've been pulled on interviews, uh, maybe you've been uh, directly interviewing people at, at your company or involved in some way, if you had a PhD who's listening to this uh, in front of you for an interview, video interview, or phone screen, whatever style, what are some of the questions you would ask to uncover whether or not they would be a good fit for the application scientist role? Um, so one of the ones I've always been asked is, you know, give me an example where you have been in a difficult customer situation and you've had to get out of it with everyone being happy at the end of the day. And that takes a special type of person to be able to, um, I don't want to say berated, but just yelled at for a few minutes when you walk in the door and you just kind of have to absorb that and say, okay, they're not actually mad at me. Something is going wrong in their process. And this is big pharma. Every minute is expensive. So I understand where they're coming from. So you, you need to be cognizant of, uh, how you present yourself. You need to be very calm, cool, and collected. And some scientists just don't possess those skills just innately, but those are very easy to teach yourself. You know, just become a better learner and uh, not learner, listener, and be able to take in the situation for what it is and understand where people are coming from. So that's the biggest, you know, communications type aspect. But yes. it's also very important you know, uh, they will ask you technical questions about the product. Now, going into an interview, you're not expected to know everything about the product, right? But anything that's on the website is fair game for them to ask you because it's there for the public. So, for example, our instrument uses a proprietary cassette to count um, the cells that are used in that cell counter. And I would be expected expecting someone to know how it works because all of that's on our website. And if they don't know, that means to me, they didn't put the effort in to understand our product. And I would also ask them about where do you see our product in the market? You know, who are our competitors? 
and other things like this, just so you can see if they have an understanding of where the market is. And I honestly wouldn't be upset if someone told me, I don't know who your competitors are. I Googled, you know, other types of cell counters and this is what I came up with, but I just don't understand the differences. And that's understandable to me because you don't have all the time in the world, but if you show me that you put that effort into learning about other competitors and things like that, that you are interested. So um, I guess there's a lot of other questions that come into play about how well you communicate. How would you communicate the same thing? I've had this question in an interview. How would you communicate this knowledge to a non-scientist versus a highly technical person? And you just have to take a step back and say, okay, you and feel free in the interview to say, can I have a second to think about that? I want to make sure I phrase it properly. And, you know, everybody's going to be happy for you to take a second. You know, don't take 20 minutes and, you know, take a bathroom break and all of this. But as long as you take like a, a minute or two, have a sip of water, think about your answers. Um, that's the most important thing. Great information to close on. And, and it just brings us full circle back to communicating to different types of audiences. It's a very exciting career to get in for that. And it's not just this career. If you're listening to this, more and more careers are going to have this kind of framework where you as the PhD are the conduit. Um, you are the liaison. You're able to speak to different types of people. You have the knowledge that you need to talk to the highly technical people, right? You can speak nerd but you can also speak normal person. You can talk to the business stakeholders. And this is true of a medical science liaison, a data scientist, an application scientist, or specialist. Uh, No matter your PhD background, if it's science engineering, if it's non-STEM, the highest paying, the most rewarding positions because you get to have that impact on a broader audience than just the 1.6% of people who are like you who have PhDs. Uh, and, and to get into that role, you have to be able, you have to show that, that you can have a conversation without getting upset or uh, offended that somebody at a pharma company is angry at you when you show up. Uh, you got to be able to keep your calm and de-escalate the situation. You got to have excellent communication skills and the best way to get better at communicating is, is put yourself into a role like this. So Alex, you have excellent, excellent communication skills. Really appreciate you coming on to communicate what an application scientist is, and everything else that we've talked about. Congratulations on your career success, and thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. And just for all of you who are out there listening, Alex is a very active member of the Cheeky Scientist Association. We are grateful to have her in our flagship program. If you want to learn more about it, you can go to phdsgethired.com, phdsgethired.com. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. I'm Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code CHEEKYRADIO at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com, P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser 
scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it, then enter the coupon code Cheeky Radio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's Cheeky Radio, C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button, and click on it, and enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees, Nobody else offers this. PhDsgethired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD, and remember that knowledge is power, and your network is your net worth.